0: welcome to the my family thinks I'm crazy podcast my family thinks I'm crazy a podcast where I your host try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird wild crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success I've been telling everybody that I kept them in a shade but every time I do my family thinks I'm crazy like, oh, here we go, Mark, and off it's, again it's with your, Mark being marketing. yeah, yeah, so, you know, that's the thing about podcasts, is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy, you know, if I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk Welcome to the "My Family Thinks I'm Crazy" podcast. On tonight's podcast, we interview author and filmmaker John Podash. This was a great interview. Please enjoy the show with John Podash. We get into a lot of interesting stuff about the CIA and the manipulation of our culture. That I really enjoyed it. I hope you do too.
1: They were producing tens of millions of hits of acid, you know, regularly. I mean, they were just supplying the world with acid. And so that's when, you know, we find out that when they arrested Stark and he goes before he arrests him in Italy, he goes before an Italian judge and the first magistrate to be investigating Stark's case gets murdered. stepfather twopuncture Score stepfather started acupuncture detox in the United States in the Bronx and I got trained at his clinic and you know he wasn't there anymore he's in jail but I got trained by a guy who, guys who worked with him and so it's a great it was a great acupuncture clinic it spread acupuncture drug treatment throughout the country and that is a much better answer than, than any drug to get off of heroin. Dr. Bernice Eddy, the highest-ranking you know, female government scientist, she blew the whistle on the fact that, and, and, and you know, Chris Milligan, of course, got a great book, Dr. Mary's Monkey, about this too, about you know the fact that they were infected with a cancer-causing monkey virus. It was SV40. It was in the you know, cancer-causing element, and the, you know, the CDC ended up admitting this that the SV40 was in the polio vaccine. 1955, 1963. My brother was born in 62. He got a uh, tumor that thankfully was removed in time and didn't die. But I think there's a huge amount of people that these cancer-causing, you know, polio vaccines really triggered in their later years, you know, tumors and cancers. And, you know, and so, so many whistleblowers have shown that there's been so many problems with so many other vaccines.
0: On the show tonight, we have author John Potash. He is behind the film Drugs as Weapons Against Us, The CIA War on Musicians and Activists, as well as a book with a similar but much longer title, and it's on the Chris Milligan's publishing company, Trinday, who is a former guest. We love Chris. He's, uh, he's a good buddy of ours on the show here, so it's an honor to have you, John. I mean, the, the first time I heard you, it was on the Tinfoil Hat podcast in 2019, and you know, as a pot smoker, you really shook me up a bit, because I came off, you know, thinking like, oh, man, maybe, you know, I've been seeing this all wrong. And I at that age, I did have maybe a more naive picture of of everything. But now after talking to guys like Chris Milligan and, and others, I'm starting to realize that, you know, the music industry and the entertainment industry, and the drug underground black markets, they're all very, very interwoven and john you know before we get into all that i'd love to know how you started on this journey what was the first moment or instance in your life where it became clear that something wasn't what you were being told or, or the general paradigm isn't exactly how it how it truly is what where was the first clue
1: yeah well it's always hard to know where to start i mean i i was just a you know, pot smoker in high school and I, I, I like to play sports too, but, you know, smoking weed became more and more a focus. And so it got in the way of certain things, you know, whether, whether it be school, studying for school or, or uh, working out, you know, in terms of for sports. And, uh, but then I, in high school, I mean, in college, my first year of college, I started, I, I kind of dabbled in every drug I could find in high school, just for recreation but I didn't really, I don't think I really developed a, a serious addiction, though I was a kind of bordering addiction, even though I was just really, you know, abusing. And then I decided to cut back a little bit in college. But in college, uh, a friend of mine on my wrestling team, I wrestled in college, was an acid dealer. And and so he got me tripping. I tripped once or twice off just like half hits of acid in high school. Didn't think much of it. But then when I, I had a whole hit and then a double hit in my first year of college, I you know it was fun enough. I enjoyed myself. I didn't have bad trips, but all of a sudden, my brain just wasn't functioning as well. I just couldn't do as well in school. Everything that seemed to come easy for me without studying much became much harder, and I had to work really hard to to get the same grades or you know my grades started really dropping a lot and after about a half dozen hits total of acid in my life. I was like, something's just not right here. You know, I'm just really falling, you know, I'm really losing a lot of abilities. And I lost some abilities that I just, I never got back, actually, I found. And a friend of mine actually, who had transferred from another college said the exact same thing with different hits of acid from that he got from his school. And so I just realized that something's not right there. And but I didn't think much of it. I always equated drugs with like the kind of hippies and the idyllic sixties and, you know, anti-war movement and and good stuff, you know? And so I didn't think anything, I I had a hard time like changing that mindset. So I I went through the rest of college just thinking, well, I'm not going to take any more acid, but, you know, I might smoke weed here or there every now and then, no big deal. And, you know, but I did cut back a lot and, you know, and my grades, of course, went back up eventually. It took about a year though. And I started feeling okay again about, you know, getting, you know, things, but I just started researching stuff for a paper on acid my senior year. And I found that another guy that went to my college, a guy named Mark Vonnegut, it was Kurt Vonnegut's son. I don't know if you ever heard of the novelist yeah. Kurt Vonnegut. But so Mark Vonnegut was, was when he had come into Swarthmore, my, my college, liberal arts college in the sixties, like maybe around 69, 70, something like that. And he just did, he just did similar to what I did, but he he actually had maybe three or four hits of acid, but at the fourth hit of acid, he says he lost his mind and it took a year for him to gain, regain his sanity. And so I was like, wow, that's, that's bizarre. You know, I was like, I didn't lose my mind, but I lost my abilities, you know, but he lost it. He said he was in a, actually a mental institution for a year before he was able to come back fully to his normal self. And so I was like, that's bizarre. And I started, so I, I tried to just focus on activism after college. I got more into, I was getting into activism my first few, year or two of college, but uh, that kind of like threw me out of it because I was having a hard time, you know, just functioning as well. But then when I started functioning better, I got a little more into activism. And once I was out of college, I got real into different forms of activism and I met and I started drug counseling by 1989. Graduated from college in '87, started doing drug counseling by '89, and uh, some guys I counseled said, "Well, my, you know, well, everyone knows that the government's the biggest drug dealers," and I kind of la- laughed at it, but it was I could I thought hmm, maybe that's true. I'm just not sure, and so I ended up you know meeting a guy who said you know counseling a guy who said my father was a Black Panther killed by the police, and I thought that was uh, interesting. I didn't know that much about the Baltimore Black Panthers. So I started writing a short story about my experiences, my own ex- personal experiences, and my drug counseling experiences. And uh, people were real into my short story about that. Actually, someone published this what we call called chapbook back then. I mean, these little little kind of uh, books you create out of maybe short stories that can you just fold a piece of paper in half, cardboard in half over top of it, you know. And uh, that became a big seller because the city paper my, in Baltimore actually did an article about about my press and also featured my my short story. And so that was nice. I wanted to turn that into a novel. And one of the characters was this Black Panther killed by the police. Another character was going to be a member an activist because I was getting more and more into activism to be a member of the Students for Democratic Society. And there it was, you know, I was exploring that and I came across a book called Acid Dreams. And meanwhile I was I was reading I was going to activist lectures and I saw a guy named John Stockwell cia whistleblower and he said in 1990 that you know i talked to him after his lecture at umbc university of maryland balmer county here and he told me oh you're drug and alcohol counselor well you know the uh, cia was trafficking heroin out of vietnam and straight into the you know american cities i was like wow i, I you know, i heard heard rumors but i had no idea he said yeah i know the cia officers that were doing that and so that was you know, you know eye-opening for me and so Following year, 1991, former Attorney General Ramsey Clark, who worked in the 1960s as attorney, U.S. Attorney General, who I talked to at a conference, I told him, you know, I was working as a drug and alcohol counselor, and he said, I said, what do you think the government, you know, uses drugs for if, they, if they're doing what John Stockwell said, you know, in terms of trafficking, you know, heroin from Vietnam, the cities? And he said, well, I think the government, American government, uses drugs to sedate and divide the masses, And I was like, wow, you know, so I wanted to turn that into a novel based on these characters I knew from my drug counseling and all this politics I was finding out. And I never quite thought I would bring acid into this story. I didn't know how much of that would be a part of the story, but I thought it could be part of it from personal experience. But I didn't know really if it would be anything else than that. And then I came across a book called Acid Dreams by Martin Lee um, and Bruce Schlain. And he basically interviewed loads of, of people from the '60s, and and really followed what was going on with acid. And William S. Burroughs was one of the people he, he interviewed who said, "I think the government used acid to uh, hurt the minds of you know anti-war activists." Basically, he basically said acid makes people less competent. And he said William Burroughs was a heroin addict, you might know. Um, he wrote, you know, of course, Naked Lunch and those famous books. And junkie, but, but Burroughs said uh, someone, you know, some of these beats were trying acid in the early 60s and pushed on him and he said, no, this is this is no good. This is, you know, something's up here. And so his book, in his book, Nova Express, he said, you know, keep away from from the uh, their psychedelic candy or some some terms like that. He says they're trying to pollute your minds with this crap. And, you know, he just warned people. He warned the, the hippie generation. He warned the future hippies and warned the beats, you know, about, about what they were doing with psychedelics and more and more at, you know, these anti-war activists and psychedelic veterans said, I think the CIA was getting this stuff throughout, you know, throughout the, our, our, you know, culture basically to try and mess our heads up so we couldn't do what we wanted to do. And so I, I looked for evidence of that and I found that, you know, loads of undercover CIA agents, you know, loads in the San Francisco area in particular, you know, all around the Haight. Martin, you know, Lee wrote about, uh, you know, he, he interviewed different agents that were stationed in Haight-Ashbury, just, you know, a supply in the acid, you know, and then, then he, you know, of course, he found that the CIA was funding the experiments at, at 44 different colleges around the, the country through a front group called the Human Ecology Fund out of Cornell Med School. And they were funding experiments, you know, at a prisons and hospitals. And this was all through Project MKUltra. Project MKUltra had 149 subprojects, started in 1953 and went until at least 1973 when they started shredding the documents about MKUltra. But, you know, many whistleblowers have said that, that MKUltra and the counterintelligence program of the FBI, that both, both these programs targeted leftist activists. They were both, you know, officially stopped in the early 70s because they were found out about when activists broke into an FBI office and got and stole all the documents. But unofficially, they kept going under different names. You know, Wes Swearingen, a former FBI COINTELPRO agent, said that. Yeah, you know, there's whistleblowers, CIA whistleblowers that said these programs continued. And so, uh, you know, it just, I just believe I found a lot of evidence that they at least continued up into the 90s target people like Kurt Cobain and and the modus operandi was they would take, they would target these musicians, you know, like the assistant director of the deputy director of MKUltra, a guy named Robert Lashbrook brought loads of acid in, to Britain, to London, according to, you know, Ernest Hemingway's editor, A. E. Hotchner, brought loads of acid in agents and instructed the agents to get acid in as many people's hands as possible in early 1965 onwards. And so when did John Lennon get his first hit of acid and George Harrison, they got dosed by George Harrison's dentist of all crazy things. And then got manipulated to say, well, maybe it's not so bad and to try it again, but they were furious when they were dosed. John Lennon was furious. George Harrison says, what's acid? I, you know, it's LSD. I've never heard of it. So you know what the hell this was. And here was this cr- fucking dentist, you know, like assaulting them with assaulting their brains with yeah. acid out of nowhere. And so that's the way it was. And Mick Jagger, um, an undercover FBI agent who was also an MI five agent, convinced him to try his first day of acid in nineteen sixty seven. And so this is the kind of, kind of crap that was going on.
0: Yeah. No. I mean, that's that's interesting. I mean, the dentist of all people, and yeah. then it's portrayed as as this like, oh yeah, they went and did acid, and they went to India, and then all their music was just psychedelic. Like it's just this right. natural, organic yeah, exactly. thing. Really, the truth is, is there's a hidden hand, there's a manipulation going yes. on, and and I think even more so in the music industry, you see it's not just like the influence of culture, but you also see certain musicians being selected because of you know their fathers being in the military, right? I'm sure. I, I agree. Dave McGowan's work on Laurel Canyon yeah. and and all the interesting stuff he wrote about there, and and that those guys were all dealing drugs and and using this black market to launder money and then obviously laundering money in the in the music industry as well no doubt yeah and
1: Dave McGowan I think was brilliant uh, great foresight and what he found in Laurel Canyon was uh really you know a great exposé to me now I focused on San Francisco and and focused on you know Harvard with Leary and Leary you know ended up admitting to two people or well, admitted to it in an interview that he was a winning agent of the CIA since 1963, but um, you know I think he first was introduced to acid. He was first introduced by, to acid by an undercover um, British agent in Michael Hollingshead, and and what he did, what Hollingshead did, is that is they he got he convinced Leary to try acid, but he gave him a 72-hour dose, so Leary was tripping for three straight wow. days so that really messes your head up and so and what they find i believe with with peers is they they did that to a number of people and they they would they really mess your head up and they could really like like manipulate your mind while you're tripping for three straight days i believe and that's how they, they got really you know leery in their claws to basically do their they're bidding, but Leary convinced his colleagues, and there and there you go. But then the oligarchs took over from there and started funding Leary and his colleagues for this uh, international foundation for internal freedom. They called it. But these oligarchs were the Mellon Hitchcocks, Mellon Gulf Oil, and Mellon Bank, etc. And you know they pretended to be these renegade oligarchs, but they weren't renegades. It was a brother and sister team, and they, you know they knew what they were doing. They basically gave their you know, mansion to. Leary and his colleagues for pennies. And then here comes all them cultural scientists just hanging out there trying different psychedelics on everyone that they could get to come on up to from New York City up to Millbrook Mansion, an hour north. You know, they, they, they convinced, you know, Groucho Marx to try acid. They convinced great jazz artists to try acid. And they gave them, they tried different crazy psychedelics on, you know, so they really hurt some minds. It's sad how I many, you know, different people they lured up there. But that was the, New York City was considered the largest hotbed of civil rights activism. Most of the Freedom Summer, you know, Freedom Riders that went down to support Martin Luther King came from New York City. Tons of buses came from New York City to support, you know, Martin Luther King and the Student non Coordinating Committee. So they targeted that, you know, that hotbed. And uh, they did the same because the the hottest place for activism in, in the West Coast was San Francisco, Tons of union activists, tons of anti-McCarthy, you know, activists, you know, anti-red-baiting act- activists, tons of us free speech movement activists out of Berkeley. And so I argue, I show the evidence that they targeted that area because it was such a hotbed for anti-war, you know, first civil rights activism and then anti-war activism. you know, And that's where why they started, you know, Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters over
0: there. You know. Yeah. Yeah, no, we've heard about them. I mean, Chris has different ideas in, a, a, in a sense
1: he's friendly with some of the pranksters and that's okay yeah know? and
0: then we we had him on the show maybe uh eight or so episodes ago from this one maybe my math's off on Was that, that chris milligan chris yeah. milligan yeah and chris chris is the uh publisher through which the okay, yeah, book yeah. is and i think chris yeah. would agree that on a lot of the things you've researched i mean really like his father talking about, you know, how they're trying to opiate his whole generation. I mean, that was something yep. that he definitely told us about. But the other side of it was I did get this impression and I've gotten this impression from other people. So I don't want to single out Chris that there are these hippie folks who believe that the psychedelics did a lot of good, despite the fact that they were trying to hurt people. And, you know, I've I've seen a lot of cases where these you know, artists and stuff. Yeah, they make a lot of art, but it didn't seem like the activism, the the politics, you know, like the real changing movement that was going on. It, it felt like they really popped the tires on that. And, you know, there was, there is the potential for creativity through this possibly. But I think what it did was it really took the direction away from, it. I mean, would you agree or disagree with that? John? Yeah,
1: that's, I definitely agree with that. I mean, I think it diverted the uh, best, I mean, when you're, you know, it's very the best activism, because when when you've got, you know, you might have the numbers and you might have the passion for the anti-war activism or the civil rights activism, but you're going up against these billionaires, you know, who have so many resources and, you know, you got to be as creative as you possibly can. You got to be as sharp as you possibly can. With this community organizing, you know, to, to really affect change, when you're going up against the billionaires, and it's not easy. You're going up against the you know government, which has unlimited money for the think tanks that, and the you know U.S. intelligence is 14 plus intelligence agencies. People just strategizing for how to stop the anti-war movement because that's that's their money makers. These wars, and these wars are over the you know of course the opium opium regions, the uh, top places for poppy fields Vietnam and Afghanistan the golden you know triangle and the golden crescent for poppy fields yeah. so yeah but you know I mean Chris is a good guy and we you know we debated a little bit over some of the stuff but you know we agree on most things actually I think and, you know I think that his friends and the pranksters you know they were probably well-meaning people but there's just a percentage of them were well-meaning but there was a percentage of people that I think were also undercover agents it's just a, a mix and that's the way a lot of these groups are and it's just hard to know you know which which is more at what point for how when the group gets manipulated to do you know more bad than good or not you know but you know every group was infiltrated it's just a matter of pranksters they just seem to be a little more even started by undercover than and just then just infiltrated Keezy, i think was manipulated I don't think, you know, he, he meant well, but he started with an show experiment. You know, he was allowed supposedly to steal all the acid. He had acid parties. And then when he wanted, you know, he asked, he said he wanted to stop the acid test after the third acid test. These people wouldn't listen to him, even though he was like supposedly the founder of the whole acid test, they wouldn't listen to him and they kept him, they made him bigger and bigger and, and had more and more until there was maybe like, I forget the exact number now it Was somewhere between 20 and 30 acid tests when he wanted to stop them after three acid tests. And he said he wanted to tell people to graduate from acid. And, you know, so that's the way it worked, you know, with the summit, somebody, somebody took over some people took leadership away from Kesey took over and took it in their own direction. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh,
0: I yeah. Definitely. I mean, We recently had not on this show, but on the Tim Foyle Hat show, a guy named Hamilton Morris. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but he does a lot of like journalism into the different drugs around the world and he has a chemistry background. So his interest is more in how the drugs are made and whatnot. And it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, and really sad in a lot of cases, like the the situations that some of these people were in. But then also, I mean, just very interesting. I personally, I've, tried, dabbled in a couple things, but you know, never anything worse than the psychedelics you know like uh molly and 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 all the harder drugs none of those ever really appealed to me but i definitely think that since that era in time we've seen an explosion of the diversity of drugs i mean acid was synthesized first time in the was it the 30s or the 20s by albert hoffman i think it was Uh, early that was about i think it was about
1: 1939 and it was and he was working for a subsidiary of IG Farben in Switzerland. And, you know, Switzerland was, uh, was the bank for the Nazis, basically. It was just one huge covert bankrolling, you know, country, basically. It was, you know, but basically he was working, IG Farben, you know, uh, funded, helped fund Hitler. IG Farben owned their own concentration camp, Auschwitz, which was the size of a, you know, city. It was the size of a small
0: city. It was absolutely enormous. Santo and polluted our whole earth with all these different chemical agents that it's really the epicenter of this toxic plague that and you know it's multifaceted it's poisoning our rivers our forests our lungs our blood system you know and I think that you know I want to make this question or point this question to you because I wonder is there a distinction in your mind between Organic and synthesized, because I think that there are a lot of people on the earth who gain a lot of benefit from responsible and moderate use of certain plants. Right? Would you agree yeah. with that? Yeah. No, I do
1: think there is a difference. I think synthesized is more dangerous. I think organic is tends to be less dangerous, no doubt. I mean, for example, the coca leaf is fine. You know, I don't think. Many people are, I don't know if that people, anyone's really addicted to the coca leaf. It's the cocaine. It's the, the processing it over. You know, into the cocaine that's the bigger issue. And, you know, shrooms, I think, are much less dangerous than uh, acid. You know, acid's, you know, a synthetic thing that was de- derived out of organics originally. But, you know, a, a psychedelic mushroom is more of an organic thing and not to say it's good for you or psychedelic mushrooms but I think it's it's much less dangerous than acid
0: yeah Uh, and it has less of a manipulative implication I mean very clearly you know these guys weren't just like making these million dollar acid labs with their you know small-time part-time job budget like these are college students with huge budgets to be able i mean obviously they're using like harvard's resources in some cases but even so that's i mean that's uh manipulation from the top down in my opinion yeah
1: yeah well, and you know it was the uh, martin lee ended up you know showing and a guy named i forget his, his dick lee his name was he's a british detective stu- you know stumbled upon the ronald starks brotherhood of eternal love You know, supply, you know, LSD trafficking group. And Stark and Brotherhood of Eternal Love were trafficking acid in in several continents, you know, North America, um, Europe, and Asia, you know. So they had, they were producing tens of millions of hits of acid, you know, regularly. I mean, they were just uh, supplying the world with acid. And, so that's when, you know, got, you find out that when they arrested a Stark and he goes before he arrested him in Italy, he goes before an Italian judge and the first magistrate to be investigating Stark's case gets murdered. And the second and then the judge that presided over the case said, well, I, I'm going to have to release Ronald Stark because he, it turns out he's a member of the CIA. He's been working for you know, U.S. intelligence since 1960. And so we're going to you know, not going to hold him any longer. Because basically, you know, U.S. intelligence is so powerful. U.S. is so powerful, and so you know, you know, the uh, Italian government actually, you know, had a whole commission they, you know, that investigated Ronald Stark and came up with the same conclusion that he'd been working for, you know, U.S. Special Services for the past, you know, decade and a half. And so this is what you know, what it's all about is there they were trying to, to burn the brains out. I think of like, you know, most of the Western world. Is sadly enough. I mean, we're talking about so much acid came out of that group, the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, which was started by the Mellon Hitchcocks. You know, John, so, yeah. oh, I didn't
0: mean to interrupt. I'm sorry. No, go for it, Jay.
1: Do you, Do you think like their plan has uh, succeeded, or what's the status on that? Well, yeah, I think it diverted a lot of the anti-war activists, the best anti-war activists, you know, in the sixties, and hurt, hurt a lot of good, you know, great minds. I mean, you know, people like Bernardine Dorn was one one of the great minds of activism, you know, back then, and so was Mark Rudd. Mark Rudd was a leader of the Columbia SDS that that, that led that you know accomplished the first building takeovers that that sparked building takeovers around the country. Mark Rudd was a great activist organizer. And when uh, George went when undercover and George Demerle with his crazies spiked, you know, his punch and the New York SDS groups punch and got them all tripping regularly, they started acting like idiots and assholes. I mean, it was just such a shame. Here's this great organizer, you know, and this is and he starts doing just crazy crap. I mean, Fred Hampton just called, you know, said he, he was acting like a lunatic and punched him in the face because he was just like, you know, acting like a masochistic lunatic versus a great organizer which he was just a year before you know and so it's sad it's just sad that all these great minds and all these people we should be looking up to right now just just got you know duped and manipulated to hurt their best thinking and their best you know activism but nonetheless you know it's still happening today you know all the a lot of these universities are, are getting funding from three groups there's three groups funding these universities the MAPS, which stands for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, the Hefter Group, and the Fielding Beckley Foundation out of England, which was started by Amanda Feeling, who's a baroness. She's like a a royalty, you know. So, Hefter, I I show the evidence, I got the evidence actually, uh, that Hefter and MAPS were heavily funded by the Rockefellers. You know, they they both contributed tons of money, and, and the billionaire Pritzker family. And so, you know, this is who's funding, you know, this supposedly, you know, alternative, you know, kind of uh, hippie, you know, studies at at Johns Hopkins and Harvard and all these places today, just like Human Ecology Fund funded in the 60s. And, you know, the Rockefellers were also providing funding when MKUltra was cut off of funding in the 60s. Rockefeller stepped in and, you know, and funded these kinds of studies more. And so it's the same people, the same, you know, thing going on. And so everybody thinks that acid is is good for you in some way. Like, because Johns Hopkins says it can promote creativity, it can solve addictions, it can help, you know, stop trauma, you know, you know, it's, you know help trauma, whatever. It's ridiculous, you know. It's like, and so people are microdosing. I counsel people, like a young woman who was 16 years old. She, she was starring in a bunch of plays in local theater, you know, a young black girl, a woman. And she's like a really sharp woman. She said, "You know, uh, when I was 12, I could I could read my script and and memorize it in like minutes." She says, "I could just remember. I had great memory. I could memorize all my script really well." Once I started microdosing on acid when I was about 15 onwards, I couldn't remember my script. I had h- such a hard time remembering my lines for my plays, and it was so sad to see. This is such a precocious young woman, you know, and. And and she says, I always under, wondered why that happened. I I never knew it could be a microdosing that might have done that to me, you know. So it's just it's still happening today. Yeah, it's
0: just a shame. Yeah, no, I I definitely think that's an, an you know insidious thing, I, especially like just think about the the way they marketed that over the past. I mean, yeah, there's no experience other than just, the, it's like a supplement. It's like vitamin A, like you're, you right. know, but, but the potential damage that it's doing to your body or your mind, yeah. who knows? I mean, yeah, I personally think that maybe I, I did acid a couple, two times too many, not more than I can count on two hands, but definitely, yeah. you know, more than a normal person should. And yeah. I haven't, seen any adverse effects, but I also did drop out of college. So, you know, we'll see. I don't want to discount myself. I think I still have a a bright future ahead of me, but I definitely am not planning on taking acid ever again after I've learned this stuff. And and I think that people do have this impression that it's this creative thing. And I would say that there's more to offer from things like meditation and looking within and reflecting. And I, I, as a counselor, I'm sure, you know, like there's not many people who are changing their life for the better with something like acid. Right. Right. And so, yeah, you know, my,
1: my one year where I was just trying to get my brain working right again, after a half dozen hits of acid, I just thought, yeah, you know, it's just, this is a struggle, you know, all of a sudden where your work was so easy and it became such a struggle to remember things just struggle to be able to concentrate and all that stuff but yeah it's, it's sad when i see so many well-meaning young people just say you know well i just quite couldn't i couldn't get things back together after you know a lot of hits of acid or where i where i counsel people that were you know were deadheads who and and i loved the dead when i was in high school but these deadheads would would trip you know up a storm at these dead shows and then they they were so anxious, wait, even waking up in the morning to be throwing up. They were so anxious, you know, just from who knows what. But it turns out there, there's tons of acid. Surely didn't help, you know. There's something about it. it's like it's like causing some kind of regulation to be off with about emotions when you trip too much, you know. But you know, of course, in my book, I talk about all the all these different drugs. You know, Molly's a problem too. I think even though it's fun, it was fun when I tried it it's just, it's a problem for the brain with the uh, serotonin receptors. And, and then you got, of course, the cocaine and the heroin causing the addictions and ruining people's lives with those, with their addictions. And, you know, and so that's, that's the way they're, they're getting at us and just messing up different communities lives, you know? So I think, you know, there's so much, like you say, with meditation, with, learning other techniques for solving problems. I just, uh, I got trained six years ago in something called EMDR. It stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. And it's supposed to be for traumas, you know, like, you know, war traumas or sexual or physical abuses, you know, kid and all that. But I find it helps so many different traumas, even subtle emotional traumas growing up. Or, you know, if you experience something traumatic in your adulthood, that it's just miraculous. I mean, it, it cuts down the amount of counseling people need to like a fraction of, of what you thought you might need for counseling to get over something. It's just amazing. It's like, it, and it's all just through uh, instead of using drugs, it's just the movement, you know, fast movement of a pen when you, you get trained in it. And it does just, a, it just, you know, it triggers both sides of the brain to just use more your brain to heal yourself. It's truly miraculous, I swear. And so I just uh, think there's so many things, like you say, meditation and other formed ways to get at our creativity, to get at our healing, and to get at so many things we can do. You know, I install things with this EMDR too that that helps people get over eating problems, you know, and stuff like that. And it's just great. Yeah, there's there's a lot of alternative techniques that don't involve drugs whether it be street drugs or psychiatric drugs that help people in a, in a really nice way it's really you know inspiring for me yeah. I feel like i'm happy about you know my job these days
0: we need inspiration i mean i certainly have noticed this growing up with parents who smoked cigarettes and drank alcohol and and everybody in my family had this kind of just don't doubt big pharma don't doubt hospital's right. attitude where you just take everything at face value that they tell you with no skepticism and and maybe that made me look like such an extremist but to me I thought they were the extreme ones like how could you how could you rely on something that a is so new to humanity and b is completely synthetic I mean if it's not synthetic it's taken from its natural form and concentrated 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 down until it's not this whole thing and I, I, you know, I definitely think that there are parts of my cannabis use that are unhealthy. I probably smoke too much. And, and there is a part of me that feels like, and I want to pose this to you and sure. ask you what your thoughts are on this, where I feel like sometimes cannabis can be a vehicle for inspiration and, and other things. And, and with responsible, intelligent use, rather than just this kind of use that, you see in pop culture where people are doing drugs at parties, it's very mindless, you know, it's very like hedonistic and, and live for, for the material values. You know, I, I, I think cannabis never brought that to me. It, it always offered me a way out. And I don't think that's true for everybody. I think I, I might be a special case, but what are your thoughts on that? Do you think there is a, an intelligent use of, of something like cannabis that's possible or, or does it always lead to, uh, demise or, or, or am yeah. I, you know?
1: Yeah, I think, well, I think, I think a majority of people who smoke weed aren't addicts. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, I think some people of course do develop problems with weed where they smoke so much. And it, you know, the definition of addiction is that it hurts, you know, hurts at least several major areas of your life. And you, you keep using, despite it hurt, hurting at least several major areas of your life. It's not hurting some you know major areas of your life. It's not an addiction. it's just recreational use. you know Now you could be an abuser where it hurts just like one area of your life, but not so you know majorly, not so horribly. but nonetheless it's just you know a majority of people do use it kind of more responsibly you know smoke weed more responsibly and that's fine. it's not a big deal. The only time it's a big deal is if if the government or somebody, is putting crap in the weed. Now that seems to be happening in the black community. Now that's the scary thing, is you don't always know what if someone's putting something in your weed, because wow. I counsel. There's a I could count maybe a dozen or more cases, at least that really in my you know last five years or ten, 10 years of counseling, where it's always the same. It's young black males. Sometimes young feed black females, but it's usually young black males that I, the last time I smoked weed, something happened, basically, that the mothers saying their mothers are saying, and they basically have, like, lost touch with reality. Something was put in their weed, you know, (laughs) don't know what it was, but something made them lose their mind. It's scary, you know, like, I mean, it's sad as hell. I mean, here's these really intelligent mothers, like, just beside themselves, like, what happened to my son? They could be eighteen. They could be twenty-one. They were in college. They were at Howard University, or they were at uh, Morgan State. Here, these school of black colleges in these areas in Baltimore, Washington, and or they were uh, at a good job, and they were doing this, and they were doing that, and they're gone. They're just not. They're they shell of themselves. Just not the same person anymore. And I mean, it happened. It lasts. It can last from. Anywhere from some months to some years, believe it or not. That's the way this is happening to their to them. So, something is scary is going on in the black community. Someone is targeting uh, young young black males, in particular, but females too, obviously. But uh, so I don't see it in the white community as much. I mean, maybe once, but I just don't see it in the white community. So, you know, I guess we're lucky we're not getting targeted. But, you know, for the white community, it's a matter of just, you know, uh, if you're smoking weed every day, you got to watch that they can arrest you easier, you know, obviously, for states that are, it's not legal, it's draining our money. It's making us just not our sharpest selves. Now, if you smoke every now and then, it's not such a big deal, as long as it's not you know, no one puts anything in it. You know, it doesn't have to be a big deal. It's just, you know, recreational use, you know, whatever, you know, I know Stephen Sondheim, the uh, songwriter supposedly guy's best inspiration when he was stoned, you know, for of weed. So yeah, some people get inspired by it. That's fine. It's great. Just watch out for it. draining your money and draining your time and, you know, making you a little lazier or making you a little you know, duller and not sharp. Just watch that. If you're going to smoke it regularly, that's, that's some of the problems with it. That's when it can start falling into the abuse category or, yeah. or you know,
0: and I mean, it's certainly much worse than just weed in the black community. I mean, we saw in the eighties, obviously people are familiar with the crack epidemic and, and how that really destroyed a lot of communities, not just black yeah. communities and
1: or Latinos, and, black, white communities too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. We, and we live in Connecticut where, you know, there's a lot of towns and cities in this state where there's big drug issues and too much and it, it takes a toll. I mean, the city becomes a skeleton of itself. Which city
1: are you in in Connecticut?
0: Well, we're we're close to New Haven and Hartford. I mean, I used to work at Delivery in Hartford. So I've seen it all. I mean, even New Haven, it was like that, you know. Yeah, I
1: went to trainings in Hartford. I went to a training in Hartford and I used to work in Stanford, Connecticut. uh, A group called Liberation Programs doing drug counseling. And yeah, there's loads of uh, young heroin addicts coming into our program from all over Connecticut because we had a, a big residential program. Uh, right next to my outpatient program they say willimantic is the heroin capital of like the northeast willimantic connecticut wow i had a a question for you john i don't want to as like a drug counselor right we see like these legislations kind of making different drugs illegal or making drugs legal and like decriminalize not just cannabis but like out in Washington other drugs being decriminalized like is this just Oregon is this like an extension of like their master plan that we're talking about in your books I don't know yeah I, I don't know what I feel about decriminalization to me I guess decriminalization you know I mean it's a it's fine with me as long as people are just aware of the pros and cons of all these drugs, you know, I mean, I mean, I'm fine with them. Not my book kind of focuses on the fact that, you know, they they really use weed more to, to arrest tons of people. And I don't know if it should be, you know, illegal necessarily. I just think people should be aware of the problems with it. If it, you know, if they get, You know, start developing an abuse issue or full-fledged addiction to weed. For people that just want to smoke recreationally, it's no big deal to me. You know, I I, yeah, make it legal. So the legality is not
0: not an issue. You know, not really. I mean, I'd be. Are you worried though? Are you worried though that now that these psychedelic substances are being legalized in Oregon, that maybe some big pharmacy companies are going to move in and and do some, you know, some of their laboratory tricks to make these drugs worse or stronger. I mean, yeah. for the past however many years, they couldn't develop them legally. I mean, it was only before all those psychedelics became illegal in the 60s that they were making them all. And there was like this halt point for the past however many drug war years where there was no psychedelic research except for in the underground. And now you're seeing where it's becoming legal. I'm I'm afraid that you know, weed, obviously, and all these other psychedelics are going to turn the way of cigarettes and alcohol, where they're, you know, toxified and, and reduced down to their bare minimum value. Yeah. You know, well, what are th- I
1: think th- weed, I think weed, I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do with weed. It does seem like billionaires are taking over the weed industry. I, I don't know. I don't know where that's going to go. I think, I, I don't know if I, care so much whether psychedelics are legal or illegal i just wish that they weren't so propagandized and i wish people could get the you know better information on them instead of just listening to these you know maps funded and hefter funded studies that are just meant they put tons of money they got incredible amounts of money going to all these universities just to promote these things you know, they, they want to fund, you know, these projects that just end up saying like, look, look what, you know, you know, shrooms and acid can solve depression. I mean, you know, I look, I'm not again, I'm not so positive about antidepressants in the first place, but really, you know, shrooms for depression. I don't know if that's the best answer.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? John, I hate to cut you off, but I think that this whole idea that people are suffering from depression, that's a, that's a society. That's know, the society we're living in, man. Yeah, and I, I, I hear you. I hear you. So many people you. blame themselves and put so much pressure on themselves like, oh, I'm not right. I'm broken. And society tells us this lie like, oh, you're broken here. I agree.
1: Yeah. I agree with you, too. Yeah. Try, try counseling first. Try changing your life in other ways before you jump to a drug, you know, try, try doing, you know, try to do a lot of other things. And, and I really do find it's the, that helping someone solve their, their thinking patterns and their traumatic thinking patterns and their depressed thinking patterns really can help get them out of this, you know, depression better than any drug. And so, yeah, I agree with you. It's like, you know, do things to change your life. Yeah, you know and and you'll feel, be less depressed yeah
0: yeah i mean i i don't want to you know continue down the rabbit hole too far because we're coming to an end here but i think you know with the rockefellers funding and it's very clear yes. that they're they're hoping that the masses are opiated enough for them to keep their control grid in structure you know in, in use and, and we're just willing kind of worker bees in the the, the yeah. farm they create, you know? Maybe yeah. that's a little too negative. What are your thoughts?
1: No, no, totally. I mean, look, it's the oldest thought around. It's it's, a, it's 150 years old. Marx said it, you'll be the, the masses. Yes, of course, you know, no doubt about it. I mean, and the Rockefellers, if you ever heard of the film or book called Rockefeller Medicine, they started the whole pharmaceutical industry around the early 1900s. They, they started so much. They, they changed the whole path of medicine. Medicine was all about herbs with the homeopathy and, you know, naturopaths. It, the home, homeopaths were the most dominant form of medicine until the early 1900s when, when the Rockefellers and Carnegie's took it over, took over medicine. They, they, you know, put tons of money into all the medical schools to, to you know, start making them more, more powerful. They took over, you know, they funded allopathic medicine which is the opposite of homeopathic medicine homeopathic medicine uh, was about herbs and uh, not tons of you know expensive pharmaceuticals and not about you know all, all kinds of surgery and stuff and allopaths took over with the backing of the you know oligarchs like the rockefellers and the carnegies and, and all that
0: scientific materialism you know and
1: yeah and they are behind the vaccines yeah in a huge way in I a see. huge way now I don't know. Maybe the vaccines are are the greatest thing in you know in the world, but I don't think so. I the best you evidence I have.
0: Force that on this show. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. I, the be- best evidence I have about these vaccines is they've been polluted from at least the polio vaccine from 1955 to 1963. Bernice, Dr. Bernice Eddy, the, the highest-ranking you know government scientist, female government scientist. I mean, I'm sorry. She blew the whistle in the fact that, and and, uh, and you know, Chris Milligan, of course, got a great book, Doctor Mary's Monkey, about this too, about you know the fact that they were infected with a cancer-causing you know monkey virus. It was SV40. It was in the you know, cancer-causing element, and the you know the CDC ended up admitting this that the SV40 was in the polio vaccine from 1955, 1963. My brother was born in 62. He got a uh, tumor. That thankfully was removed in time and didn't die. But I think there's a huge amount of people that these cancer causing, you know, polio vaccines really triggered in their later years, you know, tumors and cancers. And, you know, and so so many whistleblowers have shown that there's been so many problems with so many other vaccines. Yeah. And they've increased them from when I was uh you know young, I was born sixty-five, I had three or four vaccines, I guess it was maybe five total. Now kids are getting about seventy four shots, sixteen different vaccines, seventy four shots. It's incredible, you know, from ages like zero to five or zero to fourteen or whatever it is. Seventy four shots, but the, there's a ton of shots from the age of, from birth until like three years old. You got an incredible amount of shots. You got like three hepatitis shots. You know, that's for fucking heroin addicts and and you know and prostitutes. You know, you get hepatitis from sharing needles and and unsafe sex, you know, whatever.
0: Oh my so goodness! Why, why,
1: why is there a, a newborn getting an hepatitis shot? You know, yeah. so I got, I got. about Connecticut, they just so, made but...
0: it. They just made it mandatory that if you want to go back to public school, you have to get all your shots. So for all the kids in Connecticut, I mean, that's it's just it's de- despicable. You it really
1: mean. said that in Connecticut because Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is suing. You know, they sent a letter, a cease and desist letter to. Rutgers University about you know they're not allowed to say that students to come back need need to get the vaccine that is against Nuremberg laws
0: Nuremberg laws Ryan Festa from the CT Freedom Alliance is who I got the email from so I'm sure he's on it he's a lawyer and and he's allied with a bunch of other lawyers who are dedicated to it to this and in in Connecticut you know so I'm pretty proud of them because you know home state oh my god uh, but yeah, it seems like we need more of these lawyers, you know, ally, uh, you know, making a stand against this yeah. terrible, right. you know, medical tragedy that we're facing right now. It where really
1: is it's it, an it, oligarchy,
0: it, you know. It they, is
1: the oligarchs are, are having their way. And my next film is about that. My next film is uh, covering all this from you know what I've been talking about in the last twenty minutes about the uh, you know, about the vaccines, about the oligarchs, about the Rockefellers, from eugenics to pandemics.
0: And and they so you go and take this mercury and they rename it thermoresol right, and expect right. us to just like take it in our body. I'm sorry, but mercury's poisonous. No matter what you name it, no matter how much of a per point millimeter you put in, you know, particle per millimeter, it, it's still poisonous. You know, but it's
1: fun to play with as a kid. You ever break your thermometer and start playing with that mercury? It's, it's, it's my dad experience. let me do that. <laughs> it's crazy. I did that as a little kid. I was like, That's why my IQ is a little bit lower than it should have been. Yeah.
0: Oh, man. Like, now, we'll, we'll close it off with one question because you're a counselor. Yeah. I mean, this to me was like a little mind-blowing. I mean, what are your thoughts on Ibogaine? It's illegal, but it's kind of they're showing that it could potentially heal a lot of these people who are addicted to things like heroin and and instead they give them methadone which is just a synthesized yeah. version of, of heroin which i don't t- personally agree with but i'm not an expert but what are your thoughts on ibogaine do you think
1: well, i've is- been hearing about ibogaine for a lot of years and i've just never quite heard the you know that definitive answer about if it, if it is you know if it can your uh, heroin addiction or not, just don't know if it really does it or not. But it's possible. I just don't know. But methadone, yeah, is bad news. It's it, it helps a percentage of people. You know, there's a small percentage that do make it with methadone, and you know, and that's great if you can make it with methadone. Methadone can get you off heroin addiction and change your life for the better. Good, more power to you. But for a lot of people. It's no good. Yes, it's just not quite, yeah, it's, it's kind of like, it's just not easy. It's not easy to live your best life with one methadone. So it just depends. I mean, some a percentage make it on methadone. Another percentage are kind of living tough lives where they're just not quite, you know, they're still trying using benzos and other things and they're not quite doing their best. So it's a mixed bag that way. But yeah, I, Suboxone and Subutex or, you know, buprenorphine, really. Buprenorphine's a lot better than methadone, no doubt about that buprenorphine is better. Now, whether ibogaine could be the answer, I, j- I just don't know. I've been hearing hearing about it off and on for you know, a lot of years now. I, I can't remember how many, maybe 10, 15. And I just don't know. It's possible though. You know, well,
0: Certainly. I mean, with the trend, you probably won't see it becoming uh, legalized because, you know, they're trying to make all these addiction causing drugs more accessible whether they're legal or not they're accessible you know and then they're accessible in these fractured communities and at-risk people and you know it's really a shame I think that that folks like you who are out there counseling people and helping people are, are really inspirational and and we're really grateful to have you on the show, John? I mean, it's really inspiring the work you've done, and, and, and gathering this information into a, a concise narrative, and, and helping people understand. Thanks a lot, Mark. But I'll just
1: say that um, Mutulu Shakur, Tupac's stepfather, Tupac Shakur's stepfather, started acupuncture detox in the United States in uh, the Bronx, and I got trained at his clinic. And you know, he wasn't there anymore; he was in jail, but. I got trained by a guy, guys who worked with him in, and, and so it's a great, it was a great acupuncture clinic. It spread acupuncture, drug treatment throughout the country. And that is a much better answer than, than any drug to get off of heroin. I think it really does the, you know, just, you know, acupuncture in the ear oral you know, acupuncture does great work at detoxing the body quickly from heroin and cocaine addiction. And then you keep using it to, you know, get through the withdrawal symptoms while you get counseling, while you do 12-step groups and, you know, do do the steps. I mean, that kind of stuff is, you know, takes no drug and really changes people's lives long term. And uh, so, you know, I really think that's a great answer for a lot of people. So there's a lot of different paths to, to get to recovery, but, you know, so
0: and pick up a healthy habit i mean you were a wrestler i was uh the captain of my wrestling team in high school so i think there's a there's a little uh, bit of synchronicity there but yeah man i think that fitness and and getting out into nature and fresh air while we still can without these dumb masks i mean that's really like the the the, the real truth of it all is like right Get out and use your body for what no, it was. Meant I
1: thought to be. no, you know, wear three masks. Three
0: masks <laughs> is the
1: ideal. Uh, and take take shots every six months. That's <laughs> the ideal.
0: To get a nose mask for when Turn you're stuff into
1: a pincushion, you know, with vaccines. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to take both the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine because oh, they my. both sound so great. Oh
0: my god. Yeah. I mean, I was I was learning recently that the Moderna they're going to be modifying our RNA.
1: Yeah, I know. It's, yeah. Doesn't that sound great? You know, we're the experiment. We're the guinea pigs. You know, yeah. the FDA did not approve Moderna and Pfizer. They allowed it. You know, they didn't approve it. So it allowed. They didn't approve anything, right? We are the guinea pigs. You know, everything. Well, I, not me, because I'm not taking this crap. But <laughs> I literally um, just got into an argument the other day. <laughs> oh my god this shit is crazy dude this shit is so crazy talk to people that wanted to get the shots huh what can i say but i guess i don't know i guess majority want to get their shots now but not me and not the yeah the strong minority that i talk to
0: well if they work then they don't need us to get them too exactly (laughs) i love that one well john please let the listeners know where they can find your Books as well as the movie it's on amazon correct is it available on well,
1: yeah it is all on amazon the fbi world tupac Score and black leaders was my first book and film they're both available on amazon drugs is weapons against us the book it just went temporarily out of stock on amazon so i've been doing a few interviews lately but it should be chris should be having it go. reloaded soon but uh, the film my distributor is got it out of stock on amazon now which that's a shame so I would go to drugs as com and just get it straight from me as I have book and the film and I can send people.
0: And that um, was my next question. Cause we like to avoid using the big tech. Yep. on people. We want people to go straight to John, you know, <laughs> send him a message to maybe you get your, his signature on your DVD. Be- yes. Oh, yeah. yeah.
1: It's got the options that I can, you know, uh, sign it and date it for people. And, you know, just, and they're welcome to ask me questions about it, you know, through my website and all that stuff. So yeah, go to so, drugsweapons.com. And you got
0: and a movie them. coming out soon too as well, or is that a book? Well,
1: book? It's close to finish. It's just about finished actually. And it exposes these you know, crazed oligarchs and Fauci and all these hypocrites and all these, you know, guys in a big way, it exposes Moderna and Pfizer and all these ridiculous companies, you know, Trying to push poisons on us, but yeah, it's coming out soon. Hopefully, I mean, I'm just about done, and so it's you know, it's got to jump through a few more hoops with my documentary law firm that's got to look it over and make sure it doesn't break copyright and stuff like that. And so hopefully, it'll be in the film
0: festivals by the end of the spring. Great. Well, we'll be in touch and and great. Stay tuned for that. But John, it's been a pleasure, man. We're really happy to have you on the show. And I'm talking to you guys. Mark is bananas. Crazy. Okay, this guy's losing his mind. I'm don't listen to him. I'm crazy for feeling so lonely.
1: I am
0: crazy. I think
1: that I'm crazy. And I know when times I like to follow us on patreon.com/mftic that's patreon.com
0: slash n-f-t-i-c.